Welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast. I'm Nick Veronin, editor of the paper, and I'm joined once again by our photo editor, Kevin Hume. How's it going, Kevin? How you doing, Nick? I'm doing okay. This week on the podcast, we're going to talk with Jack Herrera, who wrote this week's cover story on Governor Gavin Newsom and his reluctance to take on immigration and customs enforcement. But right now, let's talk about the 4th of July. Last week, we had a story about fireworks popping off like crazy all over the Bay Area. Um, That was a pretty well-read story. It was interesting. There were conspiracy theories, and there were people just being like, ah, kids are going to be kids. But uh, I want to know, Kevin, what's it been like in your neighborhood with the fireworks? Oh, man. Uh, (laughs) I think people know that Oakland kind of goes off with fireworks and things. Um, You know, uh, it's been kind of loud. You know, there's booms every night. Uh, I remember uh, a couple weeks back on a very quiet Sunday night, uh, all of a sudden it got very loud right around midnight. Uh, my girlfriend and I were just going to sleep and I got up and looked outside and there was a small group <laughs> of people uh, just <laughs> no. setting up fireworks in the middle of the intersection right outside my apartment. Uh, and just letting them off and nobody was doing anything about it. Uh, it was kind of cool cause it was pretty, but like at the same time, like it was midnight Sunday into Monday morning yeah. and like car alarms going off, dogs barking and getting freaked out. All of our cats dove under our bed. It was not exactly pleasant. Our cats are unfazed. Yeah. They are soulless, <laughs> uh, soulless, evil cats. Uh, we have two cats, my fiance and I. Our dog, though, is um, not amused. I feel bad for her. She's like shaking. She shakes. Mm. She freaks out. She puts her tail between her legs. Um, but yeah, I like, see, the thing is, I like fireworks too. Um, and I was just thinking, like, um, well, shoot, let's, let's get it all out in the open. Kevin and I know each other. We go way back. Kevin and I played in a band together in, when we were in high school growing up in the East Bay. And, um, we, uh, we played together four years and we got into all kinds of shenanigans. And I was thinking like, do we have any fireworks stories? Can you remember? Um, I don't really think so. I mean, I feel like we definitely played some like 4th of July barbecues and things like that. But, um, I do sort of recall lots of like late night parties in the park and things like maybe bonfires and stuff. You remember like a bonfire, like a crazy one? (laughs) I, I do. I remember that. I do remember this bonfire that you're talking about. Okay. So I'm going to set it up. So uh, we were, you know, 15, 16, 17, and we couldn't, you know, party at our parents' houses um, when they were home, obviously. And so in the summer months, we would go to this park, um, Third Street Park in Niles, California. And there was a spot, there were a few spots we like to go to, but there was a spot at like sort of the top of the hill. And one day we had gone there like the week before weekend before, I think if I'm remembering, and we had like set like a small little fire using like some twigs. And it was like you, me and Alex and Bart, like, Uh like our band Uh basically. Um, Maybe a few, maybe one other person was there. I don't know. The next week we were like, Oh, we're cool. We know the spot to party. (laughs) So like we invited like more people. And of course (laughs) what happens when you invite more people, they invite people and all of a sudden we had um, Brad, I'll leave his last name out of it, but Brad, um, Brad like brought 
brought some alcohol, not like the kind of alcohol that would like cause you to go blind. It's not <laughs> ethanol. It was like, it's the way I remember it, it was some kind of alcohol that's used to like clean engine parts, like 100% pure uh, whatever kind of alcohol it was. And this time we didn't set the fire just on the ground with a few small twigs. It was in a trash can. <laughs> and he started throwing that stuff on it. And uh, it probably kind of looked like fireworks from far away. It was probably. a huge flame shooting up. And then I remember, then I remember all of a sudden, like a truck, not you know, on the on the on the riverbank trail, on the creek trail, like shined a light toward us and like turned its like little sirens on. I don't think it was a cop necessarily, but like probably we're like fuck, they're calling the cops. <laughs> so we all bounced, and um, and uh, the park didn't burn down. And we all, uh, we all got away. Um, I remember. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, our little shenanigans, suburban, our man. Little suburban shenanigans. Fireworks, fireworks have never been legal, like except like the safe and sane ones. But my dad did have a box, yeah, of ones that he had gotten from Nevada or something. And I remember he would bust them out around the Fourth of July, and he as he had more beers would continue like first he would light them off, but then he became comfortable like letting me light them <laughs> off. And one, one year, the last year we had the, the fiendish fireworks. Cause my mom took them away after this was like, <laughs> I lit one off. It was like this like helicopter type thing that spun on the ground, but like kind of like got airborne, but only about a couple of feet. But what happened was it like basically the winds of of fourth of july fate like pushed it toward my brother who oh, was no. probably four or five and pushed him basically into a corner of the yard and i just have this it's seared into my memory of this like spinning firework like at face level with jack oh, no. and he has nowhere to go and he's like freaking out but you know it does it's not like a directional thing it just kind of goes wherever because it's like just spinning around and then it, it sputtered out and it, it didn't uh it didn't burn him or anything, but that was that. My mom got rid of those fireworks. Oh, man. Lickety split. I mean, I totally get she it. She was mad. <laughs> I know. What are you going to do for 4th of July this year, Kevin, during the the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic? Pandemic. There's like a, a couple things that I could go to, but I'm just, I'm not sure. Like one of my friends, uh, is they're having a baby shower for their first kid. Um and they had, uh, they've tried to schedule this little barbecue thing for a while now because obviously we've been in lockdown. And so this mm -hmm. is sort of like the third time that they send out this invite with all these different like, okay, so if this happens, you know, then maybe we can get together. Anyways, so they're finally having it this weekend. And, you know, he sent another sort of reminder the other day and talking about how some of the family will be there and they won't be wearing masks but he'll have plenty of space outside because he has a big backyard and you know you can wear your mask you can stay outside this and that and i really want to go because mm -hmm. i care about them and it's their first child and i want to be there to celebrate but at the same time like i don't know if i feel comfortable so I'm still kind of waffling on whether I'm going to go to this or not on Saturday. Well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do either. Uh, I, there's no plans like that for me. It's just I was actually thinking of trying to get out of town to to help this dog maybe go someplace remote where there are no fireworks. Um, 
Yeah, the spike's been happening. I went to I there was a birthday party that Crystal and I went to and we kind of were like we really need to go. It's a really good friend of hers and it was in a public park, actually Lake Merritt. Mm-hmm. And there were a ton of people out there. So I can see why um this summer is going to be challenging and uh it, we're not out of the woods yet. Speaking of not being out of the woods yet and 4th of July, I think uh, on a more serious note this this holiday coming um in the midst of uh protests for racial justice sweeping the country is really going to be a a moment for us to all reflect on um the legacy of this country i know i've been thinking about it a lot we have a story that i want to point people to on our website this weekend about the statues that have been taken down by demonstrators and by the city uh christopher columbus father unipero sarah also um American president and uh, Union General uh, Ulysses S. Grant, which was surprising to me, but at first, but then, you know, uh, you find out he's got, you know, he didn't just help the Union win the war. He did other things in his life that are uh, just not great. <laughs> um, and uh, and then Francis Scott Key, I think there's a high school in San Francisco named after Francis Scott Key. A statue of Francis Scott Key, the man who wrote the Star Spangled Banner, um, was taken down in, um, and you know he has a checkered past as well, um, to put it lightly. So like, there's all these people who we've sort of lionized, who um, I think rightly so, uh, we should at the very least uh, take a look at. Um, I mean, what do you think, Kevin? Have you been? thinking about that in the recent days and weeks? I mean, absolutely. You know, um, there's, I think, three or four high schools that the city uh, school district is considering renaming in order to, you know, take away from their, you know, legacies that we overlooked a fair amount of, you know, Washington, George Washington Mm -hmm. owned and held slaves. There's that mural. Yeah, and there's that mural at George Washington exactly, High School, which was incredibly which is... controversial and was widely documented and covered uh, last year. That shows, kind of shows, you know, the real history, and it shows, uh, you know, a, a dead Indian, and, and students and parents were offended that it showed, mm-hmm. you know, their people of their slave slavery as well. Yeah, and it showed things that you know people. I, uh, you know, their, their, you know, ancestors mm-hmm. and it reflected the, the, you know, how they were enslaved in the past and how they were killed and it didn't make them feel comfortable. You know, I think a lot of stuff is up for debate now to be, to better understand the history of this country and to better reflect how much damage that we've inflicted upon the various indigenous and enslaved populations that we either brought here or, you know, took over. It's, it's a very serious reckoning and we have definitely glossed over a lot of our history and our past. And there's been a lot of, uh, put a lot of push towards better reflecting what this country has been. And I think it's all for the better to have a reckoning with our history Everybody always says that, you know, America is like a teenager uh, in terms of how mm-hmm. old of a country we are. But, you know, I mean, what happens when you're a teenager? 
you go through all these changes and you constantly like reevaluate who you are and what you're doing and where you stand in the world. And I think it's kind of an important moment for America that we think about our place in this world and how we have been in the past and how we can, you know, move forward from that and better reflect everybody's history, not just the whitewashed version that we've all grown up with and been taught. So yeah, that story is by Hannah Holzer, one of our um, interns, and you'll be able to read that this weekend. So please do. It's a, it's a good piece. It's a thoughtful piece. Um, and some interesting stuff that you might not have known uh, in there. Well, thanks for joining us again, Kevin. Um, We're going to talk with Jack Herrera next. We'll be right back. Hey, we're back with Jack Herrera, author of this week's cover story, Ice Out, which looks into Governor Gavin Newsom's reluctance to take on immigration and customs enforcement detention centers in the state of California. Hey, Jack. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me on the podcast. No problem. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a bit about the main character in your story and uh, what he and his peers inside of ICE detention, as well as his allies outside, are trying to accomplish? Sure, yeah. So Asif Kwesi is um, an East Bay resident. He's been in uh, Oakland um, in the East Bay since he was, East Berkeley actually, since he was about six years old um, when his family moved from Bangladesh in 1995. Uh, He had work authorization and a record here, um, but a run-in with criminal law um, actually endangered his status. And when he went in in February to ICE's office to answer some questions, um, with his lawyer, uh, ICE officers suddenly appeared and arrested him. Um, since then, he's been in the Mesa Verde Detention Center in Southern California. Um, and his time there has pretty much overlapped entirely with the pandemic coming to the United States. The situation is definitely dangerous in at this detention center particularly, but any detention center. Um, during the pandemic, he sleeps in a room, was sleeping in a room with almost 80 other people in massive bunk bed room, you know, beds a few feet apart, impossible to social distance. ICE has now had about 50 people in there, um, still in that detention, in that one bunk room, in that one dorm, um, telling them to sleep head to toe to try and social distance. Um, But of course, they're all breathing the same air and they know the risks about the coronavirus. Um, Last uh, month, early in June, Asif was one of the organizers of a hunger strike to protest their conditions. And he handed a statement to um, one of the guards in a for-profit detention center. Um, And he also read it to me. And that statement, which I find really curious, is that, of course, it made demands of ICE to improve conditions, to provide soap, and and, uh, to improve social distancing, and even to release people. But the main person that that 
note was addressed to, that that hunger strike statement, was California Governor Gavin Newsom. Um, and this is the second time the men in that unit have hunger strikes specifically to try and get the attention of the governor and specifically try and to get him to take specific action that they know he can take when it comes to ICE detention in the state of California. Okay. And uh, I think that's how you kind of came to me with the pitch uh, for this story. And uh, you also told me that um, the governor of, of our state, California, governor Gavin Newsom has, um, has powers that um, most governors or all other governors don't. Yeah. Um, so California, um, because of a couple different laws that California has in place, Newsom has unprecedented power over ICE detention in a way that other governors don't. Uh, the first and probably most important law to talk about is AB 103, which was actually signed into law by Newsom's predecessor, California Governor Jerry Brown. That law gives uh, the governor, specifically the, his uh, attorney general, the power to go in and investigate ICE detention in the state, specifically for-profit, you know, private ICE detention centers, so run by private prison companies. That's pretty much every single, that's all major ICE detention centers in the state. And over 95%, sometimes pretty much 100% of ICE detainees in the state are held in for-profit detention centers. So, of course, the federal government, you know, has purview over the states, uh, has authority, has authority when it comes to federal matters, when it comes to ICE. And we wouldn't be, California wouldn't be able to investigate these detention centers if they were run by the federal government. But the federal government has made the decision to contract with for-profit prison companies. The California government has authority over for-profit companies in its state. And so using that authority um, right now... Uh, Gavin Newsom and Attorney General Javier Becerra have the right and the ability to go into ICE detention and investigate the conditions that these people are living in. And indeed, Becerra has back in 2019. But now the people currently in ICE detention, many of them long-term California residents, want him to come back and see the conditions that they're living in today um, during the pandemic. There's two other key powers that you need to talk about when it comes to Newsom's power over ICE detention. The next one is uh, brought to him by a law he actually signed into a, uh, a bill he actually signed into law um, in 2019 himself. Um, I believe it's AB 32, uh, which gives him the ability to shut down ICE contracts, additional I private prison companies in the state. It's supposed to shut down all private private contracts uh, for detention centers and jails in the state over the course of the next 10 years or so. Um, and basically, activists want him to really speed up that time frame and begin stopping ICE expansion, um, some slated ICE detention centers that are going to start working potentially before the end of this year. Um, and then the final bit, um, and he can also use that ability, um, ability just as governor to stop transfers from state prisons to ICE detention centers. Um, the final bit, and maybe um, the most you know, strong and full-throated demand that uh, leaders like uh, San Francisco D District Attorney Chesa Bodine and uh, uh, San Francisco Supervisor uh, Hillary Rosen have asked for the governor to do is to actually use his emergency powers during the coronavirus, during the COVID epidemic, to shut down entirely ICE detention centers in the state. 
um, if this is a meatpacking plant, for instance, Gavin Newsom, Gavin Newsom, Governor Gavin Newsom would have the power um, because emergency power is granted to him during the pandemic to make pretty strong um, action. For instance, shut it down, similar to you know what he's done with bars in the state, for instance. Um, that power is more in question when it comes to ICE detention when those companies are working on a federal contract. You can't interfere with federal work in the state. So it would be a protracted legal battle. So that's why activists are pushing for him to do that, but they're also focusing on him opening investigation because there's a strong knowledge that the, the Department of Homeland Security, um, ICE, the Trump administration, these they're not going to investigate themselves. They're not going into these private detention centers and doing an investigation. So California, unlike other states, because the AB 103 has that power, and activists are pushing Newsom and Becerra to use that power to start an investigation and, if necessary, prosecute these companies for wrongdoing. And so what are um, yeah. advocates for uh, investigation and shutting down these detention centers finding? What's what's the governor's reaction been to their uh, requests and demands? Yeah, so I talked to a group of actually five different people representing a collection of advocacy groups across the, con- across the state and actually across the country that have formed uh, what they call the Dignity Not Detention Coalition to try and free people uh, during the pandemic. And these activists, they went into this meeting with the governor in April, um, no, sorry, May, um, and they were very ex- they were excited. They thought that this was finally uh, the time that they were going to see action from the governor. They thought they were going, some of them thought they were going to receive a whole plan in place for the governor to take on ICE detention. And instead, they felt like they spent the hour on this, uh, you know, phone conference call with the governor being paid lip service um, with the, um, a member of his office telling them, you know, we've done all we can. We really appreciate your work. We've asked the federal government to, you know, investigate. And the activist basically said, we know you've asked the federal government to investigate. That's not good enough. And so they, uh, the call ended. They asked for a follow-up. Um, and the governor's office declined to uh promise them a follow-up since then they've been emailing over and over again um, to try and get the attention of the governor but there's been very little follow-up since that initial meeting in may so is there any indication why um governor newsom who um previously has been very bold in his progressive stances and stances that are kind of um hard to take and maybe politically risky to take for him um, why is he? Um, why why won't he take a stand on ICE? Yeah. So I mean, of course, Newsom gets his political start. Um, well, he rises to prominence when he's mayor of San Francisco in 2004, and he instructs city clerks to um, disobey and ignore both state law and federal law, and start um, allowing same-sex mar- couples to obtain marriage licenses. Um, and that's you know that's the first instance of Newsom taking a very strong moral stand against entrenched power both in Sacramento and in Washington. And so I've talked to um, you know different activists across the state, different advocates, and this is the Newsom they know and the Newsom they expect. And they've seen him also stand up to Trump when it comes to other immigration reform. Uh, for instance, signing that bill into law, which stops private detention in the state, and also during the uh, COVID coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Newsom has extended um, direct relief aid to undocumented uh, Californians across the state who don't have access to the federal aid package because of their immigration status. 
Um, and I talked to one woman, Sandy Valenciano, um, who is an organizer with Immigrant Legal Resource Center um, based in the Bay. And she said that, you know, she thought of Newsom as an ally um, and expected him to take action. And her and other activists are really perplexed and confused why they suddenly feel like Newsom's no longer on the same side, that they have to push him to do the things that they expected him to be excited to do, to excited to take this, you know, had, had the passion to take the stand against ICE. Um, there's some perception that Newsom is trying to play towards the middle as he, um, you know, very clearly is interested in a presidential run potentially as soon as 2024 um, and doesn't want to be seen as a, you know, a complete left-wing radical in that election. That's one uh, speculation that I've heard. The other speculation is that it would, this would lead to a pretty immense clash with the federal government. And he, Newsom might be making the calculation, probably a good calculation, that California is in the midst of an unprecedented crisis and we're heading into fire season and the coronavirus um, doesn't give you a TO for fire season. And I think that Newsom, you know, might be making the calculation that now is not the time to go head to head to really clash with the federal government when the state is going to need such close coordination with the federal government to deal with these twin crises. Um, and then the final thing that I've heard is that Newsom's not taking action because politically he doesn't need to. Not a lot of Californians, I'd say the vast majority of Californians, not a lot of people understand that the governor does have some power when it comes to ICE detention. Most people, and you know, they're, they're right uh, in a lot of ways about this point, think that ICE is Trump's problem. It's the federal government. The state governor can't stop them and can't have a lot of power over them. And you know, I've heard different advocates say that Newsom's banking on this fact that he's appeared in the press as very full-throated and defensive immigrants, um, that most Californians assume he's doing all he can on this issue. And Sandy Valenciano and uh, Lisa Knox at Centro Legal de la Raza in Oakland both made, me the po- both made the point to me that he hasn't done everything he can. And people think he's good and he's solid on this issue. Um, but in this time, he's sitting on clear powers. Um, an investigation, he's Becerra's already done it before. You know, it didn't lead to a complete meltdown with federal-state relationships. Um, why can't he do that today? Yeah, given that he's making that calculation that he uh, may uh, mostly appear to to be upholding his um, very bold progressive stances um, in the eyes of most voters, um, you know, wh- what do you say to and what do the activists say to to voters as they're um, learning about this, why why should we care? How does this impact somebody with no skin in the game, no relatives in ICE detention, or not uh, at risk for going into ICE detention themselves? Why do you think everyone in the state of California should be concerned about this? Yeah, that's a great question, Nick. And I think that there's two ways to go about answering that. Uh, the first one is that this is a matter of California values. Um, people in this state, um, again and again in elections, have shown that the majority are willing to stand up for immigrants. This is a, a state that um, not just uh, you know immigrants. Of course, you know we have a high population of Latinx people in the state, but we also have immigrants um, from the Asian continent um, and from all over the world who are arriving in this state. 
we're a state uh, with a strong sense of immigrant identity, and we want to take a moral stand there. But let's all, let's forget all about that for a second. The situation in ICE detention would still very much be Californians' concern because these ICE detention centers do not exist in a vacuum. And one of the largest outbreaks in the country uh, in any ICE detention center was in, is in the Otay Mesa detention center uh, just, just north of the border in San Diego. Um, there's been over 160 people who have tested positive for the coronavirus in that detention center. And if you think that guards and staff and medical uh, facilities, like, you know, uh, workers can come in and out of that detention center without themselves catching the coronavirus and potentially bringing it home to their families, you're kidding yourself because uh, many of these uh, private prison uh, employees have already caught the coronavirus. And uh, there's actually been a lot of some organizing among guards, among staff at Otay Mesa um, to criticize the private company, um, I believe it's CoreCivic's response to the pandemic. And so what I've had public health experts warn me about is that when these ICE detention centers in these cramped conditions, you know, similar to a nursing home or a private, you know, like a, a cruise ship, once the virus starts spreading, it's extremely hard to stop. And then all of a sudden, this detention center or this, you know, cluster becomes a hot spot that could affect everyone else in the state. That's a good, succinct summation of the story. You can read it on our website uh, and you can check it out in our e-edition, which you can also find on our website. Uh, Thanks again, Jack, for coming on the podcast. Mm -hmm.